everyone. This is Prayer and Praise, the podcast from National United Methodist Church. I am Reverend Dr. Rachel Livingston. I serve as the associate pastor of National United Methodist Church located in Washington, D.C. Many people call me Pastor Rachel. Some people call me Reverend Dr. Rachel. Some people call me Reverend Livingston. Some people call me Dr. Livingston. I go by a couple of different names. I answer to all of them. But a lot of people just call me Pastor Rachel. So here I am with you today, introducing our very first episode of our very first podcast. And we are on this journey of exploring life, exploring faith, exploring this journey that is called doing faith with God. This intro itself might be a little bit longer than normal, This is, since this is our very first episode, I'm gonna give you a little bit of background on what this podcast is, how it came about, who I am, and maybe a little bit about our church. So here we go. Basically, if you are any person of faith trying to go about this journey of life, sometimes we get it right, sometimes we fall short, And sometimes we feel alone. And sometimes it's good to just know that there are other people out there who have similar stories to us, who have maybe stories that give us inspiration or stories that we expect to see in our future. It's just good to hear people and how they have navigated this journey of life, how they've navigated this journey of faith, to know that God is with all of us. And it's also good to know that there are things in life that are difficult. There are difficult periods of our faith. There are difficult questions that we ask one another. Sometimes it feels like God's not there. Sometimes it feels like God is silent. Sometimes it feels like stuff just really hurts. And what do we do to get through it? Or What do we do in our moments of joy? All of these things we find out in our faith journey and our faith story. We all have a story to tell and we all have a story to tell of how God has moved through our lives. This is an opportunity for you to hear people's faith journey. And when I say hear people's faith journey, I'm not saying hear people's faith journey from the pastor or hear people's faith journey from a a preacher or a minister or a well-known person. I'm talking about hearing the faith story of those who are sitting right next to you. Because quite honestly, sometimes we need tangible evidence of what's going on in our lives, tangible evidence of the movement of the Holy Spirit, tangible evidence of what God is doing, tangible evidence of how Christ is moving in our lives. And so however you characterize your faith, whether you're spiritual, whether you're Christian, whether you're Methodist, or whether you're whatever, even if you're questioning, We invite you into this space to hear people's stories, to hear how they have struggled, to hear how they have seen joy, to hear how they have pushed through their sadness, how they have been successful, how they have triumphed. Just hear the stories because we learn a lot about people and we can see the quilt of faith, the 
the quilt of spirituality when we hear the stories of God's people. And so that's what this podcast does. It invites you to the table to hear the stories. It came about because we gather every Wednesday for prayer and praise service. This service started a little bit before I got here. It started during the pandemic. We were all shut down, all shut in, and we started an online service. And as I came to the table and began helping people develop this service, this beautiful service that I, you know, stepped into and just watched for the first time, I just thought it was amazing to hear the stories of faith that people shared to show that God was with them along the journey of life. And I thought that that was a great thing to share with the rest of the world. And as I sat with the team and they talked about their journey of developing this prayer and praise service, one of the things that they were happy about was that they were able or felt empowered as people of God, not just the preacher or the pastor sharing their faith story, but as laity or just the normal person sitting in the pew, they were more comfortable with sharing their faith with other people, sharing their story with other people and sharing how God has been with them. And so I wanted to share that gift with the world. I wanted to bring that to the table so that people can see the gift that we as National United Methodist Church have to give to the world. And so we will be inviting people to speak. Most of the meditations that we have will be people who have spoken at our prayer and praise service. So there'll be recordings from our prayer and praise service, but then we will have an opportunity to talk to some of the people who shared their testimonies, their meditations, to get deeper into some of the things that they were talking about, to get into the nitty gritty so that we can dig deep on what it means to do this thing of faith. I also promised that I would tell you a little bit about myself. I am a Reverend Dr. Rachel Livingston. I am a Howard alum. I love my alma mater. <laughs> I will not stop talking about it. Ironically, I got my bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. I say ironically because I am a pa I'm a full-time pastor, so I don't do much mechanical engineering but I enjoyed every minute of Howard University. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, and now I serve as a pastor. I love doing work with young people. I love working with young adults. Part of my doctoral work was looking at working with young people, but also working with young people on social justice and social action issues. That's also a part of my heart. So you'll hear my story probably more as we go along. Y'all probably share some stories on later episodes, but that's just a little bit about me. Our church is located in Washington, D.C. We are in the Northwest Quadrant on Nebraska Avenue. Actually, we have two locations. We have our Metropolitan Campus um, and we also have our Wesley Campus. 
those are our worshiping locations. Our Wesley campus is on Connecticut Avenue. So you're welcome to join us. We have a nine o'clock service at our Metropolitan Campus, which is on Nebraska Avenue. And we have an 11 o'clock service or two 11 o'clock services, one at Metropolitan and the other at Wesley on uh, Connecticut Avenue. So you are welcome to join us anytime. Each service has its own culture, its own vibe. You can catch us on uh, nationalchurch.org. All of our services are posted there. And you can also check our Facebook page out. So these are some things we at National seek to make the love of God obvious. And Part of our journey in this podcast is to do that, to make the love of God obvious to everyone in the world uh, so that we hope that you feel the love of Jesus Christ in the stories you hear, in the people you engage with, in, the, in our programs, in this podcast. This week, I know I said that we were sharing stories from people that are laity or people that are sitting in the pews next to you. But I wanted to give the opportunity for you to hear from our leader, or our pastor, the Reverend uh, Doug Robinson Johnson, who is our senior pastor. I wanted you to be able to hear one of his meditations so you can maybe know a little bit about where we're coming from. Again, he is... <laughs> a person too so we want to hear his story and then later on we'll hear some other people's story but this is an opportunity for you to hear perspective from him and then we'll get a chance to talk to him a little bit about some of the things that he shared as well so listen up we're going to start with scripture and then we'll get into the deep dive of our meditation scripture comes from Ezekiel chapter 34 verses 25 through 31 and it says I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild animals from the land so that they may live in the wild and sleep in the wood securely I will make them and the region around my hill a blessing and I will send down the showers in their season they shall be showers of blessing. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase. They shall be secure in their soil, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and save them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They shall no more be plunder for the nations, nor shall the animals of the land devour them. They shall live in safety, and no one shall make them afraid. I will provide for them a splendid vegetation, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the insults of the nations. They shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. For you are my sheep the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, says the Lord God. 
I read, I read the scripture from uh, Ezekiel. And um, when I remembered the sheep, you know, this, this idea that God, uh, we're, we're God's sheep, it reminded me of that, that video, that uh, three little birds, I'll tell you more about it. But uh, if you remember the beginning of the video, the wolf is, is moving through the land. And, and if you notice, the wolf was grabbing the sheep and stuffing him in the sack. And did you notice what was happening? So this sheep just passed through. Don't worry about a thing. Because every little thing is going to be all right. Or maybe not. But every little thing is going to teach us something about God's faithfulness. Um, Thomas, I appreciated the way that you set this up to say that there are uh, many verses in the, in the Bible that invite us uh, to, to resist fear. In the Greek, the word fear is phobos, uh, and it comes from the idea of light. There's some light that comes through fear. And so what I wanted to share with you is uh, I, I spent a good chunk of my life running away from fear. And now I'm understanding that fear is actually instructive. Fear actually brings me to, to the heart of my faith and it brings me to the heart of God. And so I just wanted to give you a chance to reflect with me on that a little bit and share a couple of stories with you. Um, this idea that God can lead us through the savage beasts. You know, the time is coming when God will lead us, lead us through the beasts, the wild beasts, and we'll live in peace. This past Sunday in, uh, at the 11 o'clock service, I, I talked at the end of the message about this, this ancient discovery. It's called the Gobekli Tepe, which is in the, it's near the Euphrates River. It's kind of near that, the cradle of civilization. It's uh, when people talk about Eden, it's about in that location. And it's a significant uh, archeological find because it's, um, it, it's dated back to 9,000 BCE. So this is one of the earliest sorts of archeological discoveries that shows a, tran a transition in an organization from hunter-gatherer to agricultural calming down together, coming together as community. That's the significance of it is that it's a transition. And the thing that stands in the middle of that transition from people out wandering, shooting, trying to find animals to settling down and growing agriculture is a temple. It's the oldest temple. And so one of the things, one of the features of this temple, the first people to find this in 1963 didn't even know what it was. It was just something that looked like a, a tombstone. And so they didn't dig beneath that tombstone, they just went out. But in the years since then, and especially in, uh, in the late 1990s, they started to dig down. And what they found were these flat edges were actually big T's that led them down into this, this rounded sort of area where it looked like it was a place where people might gather around. And as they kept digging down, the first thing that they found were these big sort of like totems. You've seen totem poles in the Pacific Northwest and other places. And similar to those, they started to find these wild animals. And they're these, these representations of wild animals. And, and they don't know exactly what they meant, what, what it is that these people were gathering around, why it was important to show these wild animals, but it's the animals themselves. They weren't, they weren't like the things that you would expect to see around there. It was some um, really kind of uh, things like a scorpion, you know, of all the things that you might put up in front of people. You know how in the, in the Hebrew Testament, we've got Moses and uh, the serpent on the stick, you know, and it, this is a snake. Similar kind of thing, way back 9,000 before the common era, they were putting these images of these big scary animals up on these totems. And right beside them are these big figures of human beings that don't have heads. 
and they've, they've got their hands down at their side and they're just standing straight up and you could just decide that maybe they were worshiping or maybe they were just kind of super beings or maybe they were gods, nobody knows. Nobody can read the hieroglyphics. They can't understand what the message is. But I'm in the images that I've seen of this, and it's only 5% excavated, the images that I've seen of this, I'm just trying to figure out why the earliest people would want to put images of animals up. And is it something that's, that's meant to help um, the younger ones and the other ones to say, hey, everybody, this is, this is a scorpion. Uh, do any of you have experiences with scorpions? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. No one been pinched by one, no one been stung by one. I don't have any direct experience with a scorpion. I, I do have butter egg. You have you have scorpion experience, Munya? Big, big experience with the scorpion. If it bites you, the it sores and it will be itching. And if you if you rub it, it continues to 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 each on the body and it will be very, very, very painful for quite some days. Yeah. Well, see, that's surprising when you, because when I look at these things, I grew up with these little things called crayfish or crawfish, about the same size, have the same sort of claws, have a little tail in the back. But the, the crawfish, if it goes into your shoe and, and pinches your foot, you're fine. The scorpion uh, is different. Yeah, the scorpion is different. It pierces from the back and Normally you find it, you know, in Africa where we, we cut firewood and then you stack firewood to use during rain season. So that's where you find the scorpion there when you are trying to, to take firewood to prepare for, to, to cook or something like that. So what, thank you for helping me, Munya. What it makes me think about for these ancient folks, it, it's again, trying to think about why you put up an image of an animal. And it could just be a simple warning, like Munya saying, no, Doug, the crawfish that you grew up with, this scorpion is, is 20 times worse than that. And I hear you, Munya. I would say also there's a, there's a possibility, since the humans are standing beside the animals, that there's a reverence for, the, for especially the animals that are most dangerous. Like it's, it's somehow good to learn from some of these lessons of the, from some of the dangers to, to when you stand in the presence of something that can eat you, that you have a kind of a reverence for that. I want to say that in, in my, my own personal life, I want to tell you a story about this, this, uh, this fear that I had, this, this, this dangerous encounter that I had as a youth director and how that has tended to color decisions I've made in my life. Some of you, maybe like me, you've had responsibility for young people. And there's a particular kind of responsibility and, and terror that can kind of uh, accompany those sorts of things. So here's, here's the story. And the thing is, the reason I'm telling you this is that I knew in my gut that something bad could happen. And I didn't trust my gut. I didn't trust the thing inside of me that said, this, this could be really bad. And this is the human condition. But on this trip, it was, it was about this time of the year. We were going to have a hayride. I was a youth director all the way through college. And so I was setting up a hayride. I found one other adult to accompany me. It was a young man. I was in college about 20 years old and we borrowed a lawnmower to pull a trailer that had some hay on the back of it through a field that I'd never explored fully. Are you with me? And I didn't even know how much gas we had in the mower. I didn't ask people to RSVP 
for this event. I just said we're going to have free pizza and this hayride. What could possibly go wrong? And what went wrong first was that everybody invited two or three friends, huge number of teenagers on this trailer being pulled by this mower through a field that I'd never visited before. It's late. I don't have a plan, it's just the two of us. And as we're pulling this trailer through the woods, the trailer gets pinned between these two trees. And so it's wedged in there good. And, and we're stuck, no big deal, we could walk back, except that two of the teenage boys thought that the solution was to push against the tree and tell the mower to drive. And so they pushed against the tree, that didn't work. They pushed it and somebody had the idea that if we just start rocking, the tree. And as they rocked the tree, the tops of the trees came down on my teenagers. And I, I responded, we responded, we didn't have enough flashlights, but the trees did come down right on top of these kids. And it's, it's a little bit of a blur to me because I was so panicked by what was happening because I was so immature, so young, had prepared so poorly for this. What ultimately happened was that the, the ambulance came. So somebody made it back to a house. My, the other male went back to the house, called the ambulance. They found us in the field. They loaded these four kids into the ambulance, put these neck braces along. I hopped in, uh, into, brought all the kids back out again. Parents picked them up from this, this location. I went to the hospital. I stayed the night with families who were livid. Uh, the kids all survived, no broken necks, no broken bones, all precautionary. And I knew it, I knew it was a bad idea. And I remember also sitting in the, the, the office of the senior pastor, I was the, the youth minister and he had invited in the parents and also members of the staff parish committee. And they were talking about me like I wasn't even there, like who is gonna leave the church if we keep this, this idiot on board here? It was basically that. I still sometimes have this kind of protective sort of reflex that comes up in me, remembering what happened that night, it comes back to me several times. Uh, I know some of you have fears that kind of reemerge for you based on things you've experienced in your lives too. My little story is pretty minor compared to some of the things that you all have experienced. The way that Munya describes scorpions, he might also still have that fear that, that's with him. But what I wanna say is that, that a, a part of that fear illuminates it's reminded me to pay attention. I used to, as a, as a, as a kid, I used to think that, that um, really, I thought that God would, would just always be the one to drive out all of these animals, that God would be the one to take care of the savage beasts, all of those frightening things, the image of the, the wolf kind of making his way into that house that has lips smacking in the dark. I used to have this, this full confidence that God would prevent any kind of injury from happening to me. I thought that was the promise of Ezekiel. The promise of Ezekiel and for all of these prophets is the promise of restoration and accompaniment in the midst of the wild animals. The day is coming when people are going to be able to live in the wilderness, they're going to be able to live in the forest at peace, unafraid. But I wanna say that, that for me, I've learned something about the gift of fear, that intuition, that part of you that tells you that this thing right here might not be good because that's holy. There's a, there's a book that, a, that a, a man wrote that's been used by a lot of different police forces and it's used to protect Supreme Court justices and others. It's called The Gift of Fear. 
the gift of fear. And he's trying to make the point that, that for some reason, animals, when animals are afraid, they run. You know, that the instinct is I'm in danger, I'm gonna run. And for human beings, um, the instinct somehow is to second guess that, that nature, that intuition. And maybe to think that I've got to please this other person or I've got to be something that I'm not. And, and in this book, The Gift of Fear, he said that, 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 um, that your intuition it does at least two things really well. First of all, your intuition uh, forces you to react, it forces you to run. And the second thing that it does is that it's trying to serve the, your good. Your, it has your best interest at heart. Your intuition, your gut always has your best interest at heart. And he just gives an example of a, of a woman who goes into a, an apartment building and she's standing in an elevator, the door opens and there's a man standing there in the elevator and he's a stranger. And it triggers everything in her brain. Some of those worst past experiences that especially women have, I understand. It triggers all of those things, but it also triggers something in her that tells her she's not supposed to embarrass the man. In his book, he says that women's number one fear, well, men's number one fears are gonna be humiliated and women's number one fears are gonna be killed. And so in this moment when he's looking, she's looking at the, the elevator, she overrides that intuition, that gut sense of what I should do in this moment. And she risks her life overriding that intuition or that gut. He's trying to make the point that, that when you have these experiences, when you reverence the things that are dangerous, like the scorpion, that you're actually honoring something that's God made, that's God, that's natural within us. I was trying to think if there's anything biblically that, that, that I could call on that reminds you that there's, there's, there's something within you. And it's, I went straight to the Gospel of John. When Jesus is telling the disciples that I, I won't be with you much longer, but he says, but, but God will send the advocate. Whether that's the Holy Spirit, whether it's intuition, whether it's the gift of fear, God will send this presence to you that you can trust, that will lead you into life. And so for, for me, one of the little transformations that's, that's, that's helped me is, is to begin to trust my gut when I, when I feel unsafe. Or when I remember that, that fear, it's phobos, it's, it's light. Um, I still rush into things uh, more than I should. I know I do. But also I, I, I recognize and I learn from these things, uh, this, this gut feeling that I have that maybe this isn't the safe thing for these children. Some of you know that I react pretty strongly to, to how we lock up the church building. Um, recently, we had a person who was in our church building who wouldn't leave. And the heart was racing and he's a child of God, but my, the threat thing was there. And so I, I, I take that really seriously. Um, the reminder that there's, there's this, it, it, there's no need to, to, to always be running away from fear and asking God to remove the fear from us, but instead to ask God to help us to stand in the midst of it, to stand like those early sorts of temple giants, those temple humans that would stand there with all of these other scary animals, recognizing that our God is with us in the midst of all of those scary things, but the gift of fear is a gift that we ought to claim. And so what I wanted you to hear sort of finally in the song that you're about to hear is, um, I wanted you to hear, don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right. It uh, doesn't mean that it's going to be erased. It means that everything's going to be all right. But the, this song is a song by, by James Taylor. And uh, in, the, in the clip that you're about to see, he's singing it with his son. So he has this grown son and it's, and it's called, You Can Close Your Eyes.
And what I love about it, it was one of the earliest records that I got. He did this song in the late seventies and it was on, do you remember the records? There's like a single record and it had a little hole in the middle. And there's one song here. And then there was the flip side. The one song here was You've Got a Friend, which is uh, the beautiful thing about the church. It's the beautiful thing about standing in this, this circle of people in that ancient temple. That's what worship's all about. You've got a friend when you're down and, and worried and you need a helping hand. The flip side of that was you can close your eyes. It's all right. And that flip side is the spiritual sense. Um, and it's kind of dark. If you listen to the song at some point, there's a sense that the person who's singing, it's going to be gone one day, but you can sing this song when I'm gone. Um, Thomas, we just had a chance to hear the song that you said is so important for you and for your family. This is a song from your mother. Um, and it's a constant reminder, I'm guessing, whenever that song pops up in your head, it goes, it takes you straight back to her. That's what God puts within us, this sense of with you. You can close your eyes. You don't have to live in constant fear. You learn from your fear, but also live with the awareness that God is with us, even in the midst of the most frightening times. So I invite you to hear the song. Appreciate you listening to, to my little story a little bit uh, so that you know me better, you know my God a little bit better. And I invite you to hear James Taylor as he sings to his son, his, his, uh, his son, you can close your eyes. It's all right. <laughs> So this is Prayer and Praise, the podcast where we live out our experience of prayer and praise to God. We're meeting with the Reverend Doug Robinson Johnson, who is the pastor of National United Methodist Church. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I, I, I am uh, one of the pastors of National United Methodist Church, happy to be on a staff. And uh, I'm Robinson Johnson, so sometimes people stop me in the church and they're curious about the name, which is, is it Johnson, is it Robinson? And I say yes. And that seems rare uh, for some people. They say they've heard of women who have claimed both last names, but I've kept both of them because it was important for my wife not to lose her identity and for me not to lose mine. I'm part of a Robinson family and we go back to, to Oklahoma is basically our roots, but I've lived in uh, South Louisiana and in Chicago and in the Boston area, equal parts of my life. And I'm in about my 30th year of ordained ministry. So when we listen to your meditation, you started off by saying, don't worry about a thing because every little thing is gonna be all right. But you also paused and said, but maybe not. And I think that that's a strong statement for us as people of faith, because I think sometimes in the faith circles, we try and tell people or soothe people and say, everything's gonna be all right, it's okay. But sometimes it's not. And what, what does that mean for us as people of faith? Yeah, biblically, the idea that weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning is, is truth for me. To, to, to think that anybody, if anybody promises you an immediate fix or an immediate cessation of pain, they're trying to promise you a drug and the drug ultimately won't deliver. Everything is going to be all right. It's a, that Bob Marley song was one that I used to play for myself to convince myself that everything was going to be all right. But for me, part of the song is rising up in the morning uh, and the birds are singing. And so uh, it, it's a recognition that there's a kind of a, uh, there's relationship with God that, that meets us at the, in, in the darkness of night and there's, there's stillness and there's quiet. And that's the psalmist's experience, too, that they could be, you know, sharing the most beautiful psalm, but an awareness of God's quiet and absence. And sometimes the darkness in the evening has to be. But there is this promise of the morning and birds may not sing here in the middle of the winter, but the birds will sing at some point. Uh, so that's it's a it's a promise. It's a hopeful promise, but it's not some kind of drug of immediate fix to the end of suffering. 
And if your faith doesn't account for that silence, the dark night of the soul, um, then it's not exactly faith, it's a drug. True. But what do we do in the times where it seems like God is silent? Mm. Not that you have the end-all answer, but... Um, the, the composer Mark Miller wrote this beautiful and simple song. Actually, he didn't write it. It's based on uh, something that was scribbled in the wall, I think, of Auschwitz in the middle of the Holocaust. I believe in the sun, even when the sun isn't shining, is what Mark wrote. And I believe in God, even when God is silent. And I think that uh, I can't pretend to know that the, the depth of despair that a person in a place like Buchwald or Auschwitz might be feeling, or a person who is Jewish today might have to feel the, the ignorance of their day and the anti-Semitism of the day, of the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But to still believe in the midst of even the modern anti-Semitism that the sun still shines somewhere, I think that that concrete belief, that concrete belief in love is something that you lean into even when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it. Yeah, and that's a, I think that's a real testament of true faith. I think mm. we often like to ease into things or even kind of sanitize and make things simple um, as if faith is always easy, but right. faith is not an easy journey. Right, and um, the Hebrews, I mean, the, this letter, whoever wrote that letter to the Hebrews, it's the assurance of things hoped for. It's, it's a kind of an assurance, but right, it's, it's at the crux of faith for sure. Yeah, and I mean, we also have to believe in a God that we don't see every day. And really, in our faith, the promise is we won't fully see God until what we believe in is eternal life. Right. Um, that's hard. And yeah, for sure. And and it's hard to admit that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially as a clergy person where, they, where you have to say, oh, there are days and there are long seasons where. But the thing is that I, I think that, that churches are, are meant to be a kind of a reflection of that, that tomorrow that you envision, that face-to-faceness. That -face and mm -hmm. so the church is meant to be a little reflection of that. And that's why I get so frustrated when the church um, becomes a church of the prosperity gospel that, you know, the, here's the workaround, just you make a lot of money and then you won't have the, the weeping. Not yeah. true. Not true. Yeah. Well, and, and even that the real story of meeting God in this lifetime is being amongst a community and going through maybe even the difficulty mm. of life and having to lean on God in life, yeah. right? So I think sometimes we even get deeper in connection with God when things are hard and even when it feels like God is silent, yeah. Yeah. which is odd, but... Yeah. I the, the Bob Marley song again, uh, Don't Worry About a Thing. He also wrote uh, No Woman, No Cry. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, and I, I under, misunderstood that as a, as a younger person. I thought, yeah, come on, woman, don't cry. But it's, uh, it's, it's this invitation to, to, to grieve. I mean, it's, it's a mm -hmm. recognition of the sadness of life. And in that song, he goes on to talk about you know, what, what, what he's observed. I think one of the things I remember was uh, the, the hypocrisy. It's, it's incredibly sad. <laughs> so, and yet, so I mean, you, you have to be able to name both uh, the spirit of lament and a prophetic call to, to change systems at the same time, you know, uh, recognizing again that, that the joy does come at some point. Tears are dried at some point. That was the hope in Revelation anyway. So this may be a continuation of the same thing, but we as the church often resist fear. But I think you talked about learning from our fear. And how have you learned from your fear? And how can we as people learn from our fear as well? Yeah. Um, at one time when I was serving a church, uh, Holy Covenant in Chicago, someone passed on to me the, this the 
information about the gift of fear, the concept of the gift of fear, written by a person who worked in kind of detective work or police work and suggested that there's an instinct that we have that something's not right. Mm -hmm. And I remember, uh, and and I, I heard this message right after when I first arrived in Chicago, somewhat from the country, I pulled up in my car near the, this church and there was a car that was rolling in front of me uh, perpendicular to me that was just rolling with no driver in it oh my god and the the driver of that car was an unmarked car it was an undercover police person who was chasing someone further down the street so he left his car in drive and he's running down to and so all of my senses are just alive and overloaded with information this is not right this car is traveling without a driver something is happening in my periphery that i don't know about is there a gun whatever and so our senses are good Mm -hmm. and and trusting our god-given antenna and when I, when I read The Gift of Fear, recognizing that women especially who have this sort of a sense of being followed, it's something that a lot of men don't appreciate. Mm-hmm. But, but it's, it's, a, it's a realization that I, you know, based on experiences that I may have had as a woman and based on experiences of, of statistical uh, vulnerabilities. So the, the Gift of Fear is about trusting those instincts. They're God-given. Um, and so we're not to try to shut those things down with a drug, for example, or, mm-hmm. or with a... With, to shut it down with, with a, a sort of a, a, a cliche, mm-hmm. everything's going to be all right. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe I'm going to go ahead and rush and get over here in this corner. Uh, maybe I'm going to try to get into some light. But but uh, so I think that's that's what I'm getting at with the gift of fear is that it's 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 a God given service that we have senses, both our ears, our eyes, smell, but also this kind of deeper intuition that that I may not be safe and to trust that instinct. So I'm going to go into you shared a story about when you took the youth out to uh, a hayride. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> mm. Seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> So what was that experience like for you? And what, I mean, what did you learn about your faith? What did you learn about fear? What did you learn about just kind of everything in that in that moment? Because, I mean, we make certain decisions, sometimes not expecting the worst, and then the worst happens. Mm-hmm. And how do we pivot? How do we keep moving in all of that? Yeah. One good thing that I learned, again, with, with, uh, with young people who suddenly had this branch fall on top of them in the middle of a hayride, I made mistakes along the way. None of them were seriously injured, ultimately. But what I learned about myself was uh, up until that point, and I'm, I'm a young adult at that point, but up until that point, I worked really hard to cover my insecurities or cover my mistakes. Kids do that. You know, I didn't just do this thing. See, I, I once shot a chicken in our in our farmyard, and and I quickly buried the evidence before my parents found it. They can count chickens, <laughs> so so. Um, but at that point, my deepest concern was for the the well being of these people who were injured, and I remembered feeling that. And I remembered only a week or two later when I was brought in front of some authorities in the church where I worked where they said, you know, is, is this going to be a liability that we keep this guy? At, at that point, it, it became more about me and about what happens to me. But mm-hmm. I think the, the earliest sense when, uh, what I learned was that, that when a thing like that happens, you deal with the crisis. It's no one's fault. It's it's harm and it's it's injury. And you you respond to that. And I see this around crises around, you know, that, that happen all the time when something terrible happens, it brings out the best in us. Uh, then it doesn't take long before the worst of us and the blaming and scapegoating happen. People have to take responsibility 
responsibility for the things that are that are a result of our our inaction or our our, uh, our ignorance or lack of planning. And so I was prepared to take responsibility later for that. And there was enough grace to, to allow me to stay and to continue to grow and to learn. But I, I like knowing about myself that I did care about those young people. And I did care about their well-being and didn't feel the need to hide any particular anything. And so even speaking up about it in this church, it doesn't help my credibility. But I, I think if you don't, you, you learn from your mistakes. And so you don't, I, I don't fear taking young people out again to do some other thing because I get better at it. And I'm smarter and we're smarter as a church about safe sanctuary and protecting children, having the right number, number of adults, the right plans so that people aren't exposed to harm. We're getting better and better as a church about those things. I mean, but I don't, I also don't follow you. It is, being a former youth director, sometimes caring for youth is really hard Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of people have expectations for what it is that they want for their children or how they think things should go but you know you want to have the best experience that's fun for kids but sometimes (laughs) well in your experience with in youth directing what was did you ever feel like you made a mistake similar to that I don't know if I felt like I made a mistake similar But I know that I think sometimes when I went out to events, I maybe hoped to God and prayed that something really bad wouldn't happen because I saw, I mean, I still went on some of those trips that were like real (laughs) liabilities. And I know I took, one time I took the kids out to this gorge that, I mean, it was like this big area that I think was in really kind of in someone's backyard but they had this big you know pond thing and it it had fun stuff and I think someone told me about it but when I got there I was just looking at all of the things like that's unsafe and that's unsafe (laughs) and that's unsafe and I was kind of like I don't know if I can bring them back here not in good conscience but yeah, I remember just thinking, just if we can get home without someone <laughs> hurting themselves, yeah. because I kind of know what to do in this in a emergency situation. But what I know is I call nine one one, and I also call parents. But mm-hmm. um, it might have also been helpful to find out where the closest hospital was, and yeah. you know, the, I just don't always think about those things until you're in it. Well, it sounds like you and I both as youth ministers, we have this sort of threat matrix. And so <laughs> we, we superimpose this grid, you know, like say danger, this is a problem, this could be a problem, these two people going off this direction might be a problem. And the real grace is, is to, to be aware of those things, to know our role as responsible ones is to try to be aware of, of what ifs, yeah, but yeah. Not, to, not to presume the worst. And that's the thing about you know youth ministry. It's like you take all of these young people and you, you presume the best of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they start to presume it of themselves and of the world too. So you can, you can be wise as serpent, innocent as doves. <laughs> um, True. But yeah, it's an awesome responsibility and, and we're not paralyzed with fear. You, know, you, you, still, you still make that next plan and then you have your provisional plan. You know around the around the edges yeah and and that i mean that could be a a good somewhat model for faith really i don't know if i've ever even thought about it like that but this kind of fear exists but we still push on Mm -hmm. and i mean i know i quite often sometimes in fear become paralyzed like a deer in headlights Mm -hmm. but which is natural and good it's it's an an intuition (laughs) you know and right but then how do you push through that then i don't know if i always do i think I try and the I think the good thing is to try and push through but 
I mean, but you're right. I think there's a little bit in our faith journey, there's a little bit of a tandem of there are moments that where we do have to push through. And there are also moments where we have to stop and either lick our wounds or heal or or even stop and leave altogether. And I don't know if we always know what that is until we're in it. Yeah. And that's that's difficult. <laughs> that's difficult because I I mean I guess with faith we like to have the perfect formula to get get to the mm-hmm. perfect thing, mm-hmm. and faith's just not like that. Yeah, yeah. There was a early in my ministry there was a, a man who was struck by lightning on a golf course. Oh my god. And so in talking with the the friends who witnessed this, we talked about what their options were when they were on the golf course and they could see the dark clouds and they were standing under umbrellas. And so um, the only two options that occurred to them was we could either stand under the the umbrella or stand under a tree. And I'd like to say there's always a third option. (laughs) My third option would have been to go back to the clubhouse. Um, But I think that the paralyzing part is to to begin to think that you you really only have two two options and there's, there's always a third option. And it's to give yourself enough time to think. And if you have to walk away from a job, walk away from some painful relationship, and long enough to figure out what that third thing is and, and not accept the, the, the kind of polemic that it's either this or that, the umbrella or the tree. There's, there are other, there's, a, there's a third choice. There's a clubhouse. So I think in, in your meditation, you said that this, this moment reminded you to pay attention, which kind of you... A little bit expressed just now when you said we may have to pull ourselves away to even let the third option come. Yeah. But what does paying attention look like mm. for you? Mm. Um, earlier, I, I, I talk about the, the, the Three Little Birds song, Don't Worry About a Thing and the Three Little Birds. And there's some people that make a whole life of trying to distinguish one bird call from another. It's easy when it's the crows, you kind of know. They're, they're, but but otherwise, you you have to have a kind of a discerning ear for these things, and I think you you have to have a, a, a real desire to to a sensitivity to nuance, mm-hmm. and I think that we we're missing nuance in our kind of political discourse. We miss nuance when we're threatened. The fight or flight thing, all mm-hmm. nuance is lost. So to True. give yourself a space to kind of recognize the nuance of a bird's call. Even when I when I offered this message on Zoom, I I, I get really anxious when I preach because I think, well, who am I? You know, what what word do I really have for, for people? Why why should people listen? Zoom is even harder. And what makes Zoom harder is that it's it's a community that that uh, may not know that we're in a two way in engagement here some people might be on their screen doing something else and so they're not tending and nodding and moving mm-hmm. and as a preacher as a person who's speaking to a group of people I, I pay attention and and so in that moment I had to pay attention to a particular person who might have been tending and there there might have been 20 people on the screen at the time but I find that one who's mm-hmm. who seems to be tending and I think that's the trick in life is that you 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 go ahead and keep scanning until you find something that you know that, that some some bit of blessedness that's embedded you know, in the in the landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it can be bird song. Sometimes it's the it's the voice of a child and it's song, but it's it's just sensitizing ourselves and giving ourselves space to notice nuance. But I I also I, mean, I guess I also like you shared the I guess the vulnerability of being nervous in mm-hmm. preaching mm-hmm. because I don't think people realize that for us when we step up it's nerve wracking every single time. Mm-hmm. Am I saying what God wants me to say? Am yeah. I? Mm-hmm delivering something that people will hear. 
Am I answering a question that no one's asking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's true. Uh, but that also paying attention to things that are happening in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, are people receiving? Yeah. Um, is God still speaking? Yeah. Even though the sermon is written, is God still speaking and telling me I need to say something else? Yeah. It's, yeah, the paying attention is, I think we live in a culture where we don't, pay attention enough or mm. we've been taught to kind of keep moving to the next thing mm-hmm. over and over and over again mm-hmm. uh, rather than taking time to pay attention or even paying attention to the nuances in the movement mm-hmm. of things mm-hmm. when the when we got to go to France a while back we'd we'd read about slow meals in France and the theory was was interesting but the idea um, the antithesis of, of eating in the United States which is you know, in the car, Chick-fil-A, sometimes accidentally eating the wrapper of the thing because you're in, 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 on the way. Maybe I'm the only one who's done it. But, but and to, to be in, in other places where, where you relish the food, that's for one thing in, in France, that you get the table so that you can enjoy the food, but also slow conversation so things have a chance mm. to develop. And it's, it is, I think I heard you just say, just to, to give something a, a chance to kind of develop, uh, to give yourself a chance to listen well. And we're just not offering that to one another in our polarized speech, in our frantic kind of activity. There just isn't time for good food or good conversation and nuance. True. True. Um, and time to even sit back for a minute and, and are disgust. I can't believe she just said that. <laughs> but wait a minute now. And, and as preachers, we've got, you know, 13 minutes, God help us, 20. Um, but, and, and it's not a dialogue. And so I think we're all really craving an opportunity to be understood and then deep, more deeply to understand kind of what God's doing in the world. Um, and it takes a minute to listen to understand that. Yeah, yeah. I think this year, one of my, I guess one of my prayers has been to kind of in maybe enjoy or feel the world more fully. Yeah. And I guess I was hearing that as you talk about when we go to Chick-fil-A and we eat really fast. Sometimes I have to remind myself because I'm often eating like really quickly in between things. Mm-hmm. But I often have to remind myself like, did I really sit and taste mm. that food? Mm. What did it taste like? Or did I just, you know, yeah. give myself energy? Even if it is Chick-fil-A, like there's a there's a significant taste to it. Or just sitting and taking in the, you know, the taste of it for one second. Or yeah. listening to conversation and trying to hear what people are saying rather than waiting mm-hmm. for a response. That's um, the hardest part, yeah. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I think that's the hardest part of conversation. Well, we try to prepare ourselves, right? I mean, so we don't want to come across as ignorant or, or uh, so we, we pick one part of what a person has said and we, we prepare our response to that one part. And we, we miss the, you know, 70% of what they said either verbally or, or through their gestures. So yeah, that's unfortunate. I should say for Chick-fil-A of all the, all the things, all the examples, I've, I've eaten at Chick-fil-A twice in my life because it's, <laughs> I haven't appreciated Chick-fil-A's position on homosexuality, and so I, I, I will eat literally any other chicken sandwich first. So why that came up as an example, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I always feel bad when I uh, yeah. eat at Chick-fil-A, but um, yeah. yeah. So we're going to close out this, this session. Do you have anything else you want to share with people about what it means to travel in faith or, or anything? 
Yeah, I, I think there's so much to say, but I, I appreciate that the, the space that you're opening for conversation about these kinds of things. It, it takes time. It takes somebody who has an, uh, asks an interested question. And I, I, th- I think that, that really deep spirituality starts to grow when you start to sense God asking that deep question. Mm. Um, somebody has phrased it as, what are you going to do with this one precious life that hmm. you've been given? And so it's a it's a it's a kind of a call, uh, bird song, whatever else that that you know the wisest ones hear when their feet hit the floor in the in the moment. What are you going to do with this precious day? Mm. And so I think to be in dialogue with our with our, our siblings and in dialogue with God is is where you do begin to find a way through the fear toward the joy. We want to thank Pastor Doug for joining us and sharing his story. We learned so much from him and we have gleaned so much. We know that the journey of faith is not easy. It never promised to be. And we also learned that we cannot have a faith that promises a false sense of security, that all things will be all right all the time, because sometimes it's not. And to offer a quick remedy to anesthetize our pain or to bring us into joy immediately without working through our pain and our fear can be a drug. God is not a magical ATM that doles out happiness to replace our pain and hurt. Sometimes pain and fear are necessary and they help us to grow. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That is our faith. We have a faith that calls us to live out that understanding of weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. God is there with us in all of it, through the weeping and even in the joy. The things that scare us may sit with us for a while, but God is there in the midst of pain. I feel like I'm about to preach right now, so I'm gonna stop. But we must know that fear can be a healthy thing along this journey of faith. And sometimes it tells us to flee, and sometimes it tells us to push through. But sometimes we need to take a step back to see the full picture, because there's also a third option. Pastor Doug has shared his story with us and hopefully helped us to wrestle with the uncomfortable because our lived out experience can be both our prayer and our praise to God. So catch us on all of the social medias. Catch us at www.nationalchurch.org. That's our website and you can find our 9 a.m. and 11 11 a.m. services on Sunday there. Catch us on Facebook at National United Methodist Church. You can catch us on TikTok at National Church DC and on Instagram at National UMC DC. And of course, you can join us for prayer and praise on Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. at www.nationalchurch.org slash prayer and praise. If you click there, it should take you to a Zoom link. And remember that we seek to make the love of God obvious. So my friends, let your story be a lived out prayer and let your witness be a praise to God. And so as we close out this particular series, I just want to remind you when James Taylor offered that song, uh, yes, he did sing it with Joni Mitchell, Mary Jo, absolutely. And he also ended all of his concerts with that song. 
And so that was the last word that he wanted people to remember, probably the last word he wants people to remember when he's gone for good. And that is that you can close your eyes. It's all right. So friends, let that be what we take into our gentle evening. Close your eyes. It's all right. Go in peace, go in love, in mercy. Amen. Thank you.